Good morning. We're working our way through the letter to the Hebrews, and we're in a place, if there's a high point in the Bible, this is it to me. Um, introduces a lot of things, but just so that we can kind of find out where we are. Um, the writer has been looking at the exodus from Egypt, which is the defining point in Jewish history. That's what happened. Led by Moses, millions of Israelites headed to the promised land. And of the original company that left, only two arrived. And the rest died in the desert. The writer to the Hebrews performs what we might call the spiritual autopsy. He, di- he identifies the spiritual sickness that claimed their lives, that caused them not to be able to arrive at the place that God wanted them to arrive at. And so, and what he talks about, and we answer the question, why did so many children of God die in the desert? He says a couple things as far as the problems that they dealt with. It says they rebelled. And the rebellion was about bitterness. They didn't like what they had to deal with. They didn't like what they had to eat. They didn't like the discomfort. Not just that, they were disobedient. And the disobedience is a particular kind of disobedience. It's a disobedience that's rooted in disbelief. It's not just, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. It's, I don't trust you. So I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. That's what they were dealing with. And what it says, the writer, as he points to the deep infection that caused all of these problems, it says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It was unbelief at the root of it. The bitterness, the sinfulness, the disbelief-based disobedience All those things are the fruit of the problem. And unbelief is the root of the problem. And so if we want to deal with bitterness, and if we want to deal with disbelief-based disobedience, and if we want to deal with rebellion and hard-heartedness, we could deal with the fruit of the problem, but that doesn't make much sense, does it? If you deal with the root of the problem, the fruit of the problem takes care of itself. Um, What kind of unbelief was it? It says, God said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. The unbelief, what God told them, expressed to and extended to them is enter my rest. Enter my rest. The unbelief is related to this. They looked at a barren land, empty shelves, and said, "Uh, what rest are you talking about? A rest doesn't seem to be a rest when there's not a lot of stuff to eat, when there's difficulties. This is the unbelief that was at the root of the problem then. Rest-resistant unbelief. God says, enter my rest. They say, "Mm, no, thanks. In the midst of the rebellion, the disobedience, the sin, the restless unbelief, what the writer does in Hebrews 4, he looks into the heart of God. And we find something surprising. It's almost shocking. What he reveals is that God is at rest. 
Ever since creation, God's been at rest. So in a world where evil runs amok, the writer is indicating that God was at rest. It's a mistake to imagine, and we do this uh, naturally, I think. We imagine God overseeing world events. And the last thing we would think about him is being at rest. We would imagine God being restless. Oh, my goodness. Oh, 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 my. You know, and that's, that's easy for us to think about God and imagine that that's how he acts, that he's restless. The writer identifies is that when you're God, when you're God and you're ultimately powerful, everything comes from you. One of the prerogatives of being God is that you get to be at rest because nothing can challenge you. I mean, what if you created everything? What can really constitute a challenge to you? And that's what the writer indicates, God being at rest. Our restlessness doesn't make God restless. And what he invites us to do then in Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We look over the the wilderness, and we see graves located, and we say, boy, I don't want to go, I don't want to happen, I don't want that to happen to me. And, and what the writer is indicating, okay, here's what you do. Learn to enter God's rest. Learn to enter God's rest. How do we do that? Uh, it's, well, first of all, let's, let's understand that you can't solve a problem that you don't carefully and accurately diagnose. Would you agree? If you go into the hospital and you don't know what the disease is, the treatment is not going to be effective. If you bring your car into a shop and they don't know what the problem is, the chance of them fixing the car is nil. You've got to know a problem before you fix it. So um, the takeaway from Israel's wilderness wanderings, again, is that the hard-heartedness, the bitter rebellion, and the disbelief, Base disobedience are rooted in restlessness. Do you want to increase your responsibility? Not responsibility. Responsibility. Do you want to increase your responsiveness to God? If you do, the, um, the answer is enter God's rest. And he goes on to talk about it, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, and one of the reasons why we need to enter God's rest is because of the influence of the Word of God that existed at the time, the Old Testament of the Bible. This is what it says. The Word of God, verse 12, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. To the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, the word of God that exists at the time is the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's the word of God that existed. The New Testament didn't come into existence until about two to three hundred years after when this book was written. It says all are naked and exposed. And so the impact, as the writer describes what it's like, an impression of total exposure and utter defenselessness. This is the impact, the way the Old Testament can make you feel. It points out what you're doing wrong, and you read things that cause you to be kind of frightened about what might happen. The image here is of a sacrificial victim, a lamb or a goat or something like that, on a table 
the neck exposed, about to receive a killing blow. That's the image here. It doesn't really work to put a nice face on this. All things are naked and exposed to the eye. And as we've talked about, if you're, if you're naked on a table, somebody has a very sharp instrument, and they tell you, okay, just tip your head back. I guarantee you're not going to take a snooze. It's a, it's, it would be very restless, wouldn't it be? That's the picture that's created here. We're judged by the Word of God, particularly in the Old Testament. This doesn't allow us to enter God's presence confidently. Remember what Adam and Eve, remember what happened to them? When they realized they were naked and, and they were ashamed, and what did they do? They hid. They heard God coming in the garden in the cool of the day, and they took off and they found place to hide. That's what we do instinctively. We hide. And when God says, where are you, when he called them out, remember what happened? The, Adam, remember what Adam said? And the woman you uh, sent here, she's the one that gave it to me. It's, it's her fault. So we don't not only hide, we hurl. We hide and we hurl when we're confronted by our guilt and we're supposed to enter God's rest. How do we do that? This is where divine sympathy enters the picture. Look what it says in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, the word confidence is an important word. It's a word that describes confidence in Entering someplace, we really do want you to enter and sit down and eat with us. And so the image is when you kind of walk through those doors, if you choose to say it, if you can, you don't have to kind of look around and you can just blow right in. That's the image of confidence. Only it says, let us approach the throne of grace and approach the throne of grace with a sense that you're invited. That's what this means. Not only that you can enter confidently, but when you're there, and this is the tough part, because it's talking about entering God's presence and what it says. And we're going to have to talk about how you pull this off. It says speak freely when you're there. Speak freely is openly. It's to express the different things you think and feel. A lot of us grow up learning to pray certain prayers. I grew up, and the prayers are good. There's some prayers that are so, they express a lot of stuff. And I'm not blowing that up, but it's, it's, it wants us to go past that. Don't just say pattern prayers. Learn to come to God and tell him what you're struggling with, what you're puzzled by what you're wrestling with. Speak freely with him. That's what's being encouraged here. And that's hard to do. 
hard to learn to do. Uh, God wants us to come into his presence confidence. When judged by the word of God, a high priest who understands human weakness would be pretty valuable. Let's say that's God's throne room. Okay, God's throne room. And we know that God is on the other side. And we're walking and we're conscious that we don't do everything right. If there's a person who is kind of like an intermediary, who stands and will welcome us and lead us into God's presence, and if that person sympathizes, this would make it easier, wouldn't it? We don't have to just go in by ourselves. Somebody's bid, oh, come here, I know you're not, I know that you don't say it well and do it right. I understand that. And come on, I'll bring you in. Would you, would you agree with me that if a person's functioning in that way, it would help? That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is like us. God is an unembodied spirit being. He doesn't have a body. Jesus has a body. That's why he had to come, because we, God really can't fully comprehend what it's like, even though he created us. To be a spirit in a body. But can Jesus? Yeah, he can. So Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He looks at you and says, I understand. I understand. Come here. Come here. Let's go in and talk with him. I'll stay with you. That's what a high priest did. He was an intermediary. Connecting with a merciful high priest, would you agree with me, would make it easier to enter into God's presence and speak freely with him there? That's why Jesus came, so that he could sympathize with us. Because in our being ashamed of what we've done and we shouldn't have done, what we didn't do that we should have done, that that feels pretty shameful sometimes. And when we feel ashamed to come before God, Do you know what the image of shame is? Here's the shame is when you expect for someone to look at you like this. It's it's to it's for somebody to kind of look at you as if you're ugly and defective. That's the sense for shame. Yeah. And what we do when we feel shame is we express that by feeling Ashamed. And here's the picture for ashamed. You know what you do when you're ashamed? You see why you do that? You're expecting somebody to go, ugh. And so if you're expecting that, what do you do? I don't want to look at that. So we turn our face from it. What is it that you would be helpful if you feel exposed and vulnerable and naked? You know what would be helpful? to be able to look and find somebody sitting there who expresses sympathy. There's not judgment. There's not a leer. You get the sense there's eye contact. They look at you. They say, I get it. I get it. Look at me. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He sympathizes with us. And that makes it possible to walk towards entering into God's rest. Um, 
as the writer of this letter expands our awareness of high priests in general, and Jesus in particular, he tells us some things about high priests that are good for us to know. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It's in that, that section. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins as he does for those of the people. The high priest was responsible to offer gifts and sacrifices. There's a few things. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read something. And you can take it with you. It might be, it might present a spin on sacrifices that you might not have been aware of. And again, it's, it's fairly short. You want to just listen, listen along. If you want to follow along, it's the article that's from a book that I've started but haven't finished, The Face of Grace, which is Grace in the Gospel of John. And um, I'm going to read it. it. It starts off with a question. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And Jesus' crucifixion is the most significant, most talked about event in the history of the world. You'd imagine that such a frequently analyzed, oft-discussed event would also be the best understood. Sadly, the reason for Jesus' death is frequently misunderstood. And this misunderstanding creates spiritual confusion. Fortunately, Jesus provided a striking analogy to clarify why he had to die. From John 3, 14 to 15, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In explaining the significance of his crucifixion, Jesus referred to an event that took place when the children of Israel, under Moses' leadership, were wandering in the wilderness. En route to the promised land, the Israelites became bitter and resentful. Remember, that's one of the deals they dealt with. Bitter, resentful, hard-hearted, disbelief-based disobedience, and this is one of the instances where they evidenced that. They um, spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. In response, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Desperate to deal with the snake infestation, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake. Put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Jesus used this story to explain why he would be lifted up on a cross. Many teach and believe that Jesus was punished for our sins on the cross. Jesus, however, didn't view his death as punishment. The snake wasn't lifted up to absorb punishment. The snake was placed on a pole to provide healing. 
Jesus did not go to the cross to receive divine punishment. In the Old Testament, God declared, the life of a creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves upon the altar. When we see blood, we think of, we think of death. God sees life. God did not vent his wrath on the animal that was sacrificed. God gave the blood in order to give life. The life of the animal was not taken in anger. The life of the animal was given in love. The image of a snake on a pole. Do you know what that image is used with? What's it used with? Medical profession. Exactly right. And it comes from this story. The image of a snake on a pole drawn from the story was chosen by the medical profession as the symbol for punishment. Healing. Healing. In the same way that the snake was put on a pole to provide physical life, Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. His death is not to be understood as life taken in anger. His death is to be understood as life given in love. Jesus went to the cross not to receive divine punishment, but to provide divine healing. With respect to high priests, it's not just what they do offering sacrifices. It's how they do it. As God's representative, it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Let me tell you what it means when it says he can deal gently. It's, it's moderate. It's neither apathy. I don't care what you do. Just do whatever you want. It's not that, and neither is it, oh, oh, it's something between apathy and antipathy. It's moderate. It's restrained. It's, the word describes the balance between those things, and it, I found a definition. It means to restrain or moderate one's feelings. It's what you do. Again, I don't think Jesus had to do this, but think of yourself as a parent. Okay, Oh, kids, you think of yourself when you did something wrong and your parents are going to deal with you. And the parent says, let me think about this just a minute. And you're thinking, that's probably a really good idea. <laughs> that's probably an excellent suggestion. How about kids? Yeah, I, I, I agree, Mom. I think that would be a good choice. Yeah. And so what, what they might do then is, Go away and think about it and come back and maybe not be quite so angry. That, then that's the image of the word. It's the, it, it means to restrain or moderate one's feelings and so to deal gently and considerately one another. It describes then too what Jesus brings. When we come to him, he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. We don't do what we should do. We stray into places we shouldn't stray. We get the sense that he is incensed, but that's not it. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Um, what Jesus said, it's written in the, the text uh, from Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And some of this might be hard for us to believe. When God looks at you and, and Jesus 
as the high priest leading into God's presence and as God, when he looks at you, he doesn't, he's not disgusted. You don't listen to me. It's true. We have a tendency to turn away from him, to hide, like Adam did, right? Or to hurl, to defend ourselves. What he's telling you, look at me, look, look, look at me. Jesus is sympathizing with you. When somebody sympathizes with you, do you have to turn away in shame? When somebody sympathizes with you, do you have to turn away in shame? No, nothing to turn away from. Somebody, God, man, that's Jesus, and that's what we're told. Um, You know why Jesus had such trouble with the religious leaders of Judaism at the time? Look what it says in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The problem is, it wasn't the weight, because the weight of the law of God is heavy. The problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that there was no sympathy with them. They weren't willing to lift a finger to do anything. And you know what Jesus says? That is not the way I handle things. Somebody who's sympathetic is going to extend a hand, and that's Jesus. Um, God God sovereignly provides for sympathy. Without sympathy, we can't enter with confidence into his presence. I'm going to say that again. If you, if you come, if you, if you take anything from this morning, I want this to be it. God wants us to learn to enter into his presence. And I'm going to tell you something that we're going to need in order to do that. We're going to need to believe that there's sympathy that's going to lead us in here. Without sympathy, we just can't do it. We just can't do it. And that's why God sent his son, in order that we might be able to believe that he sympathizes with us. And this is something that Jesus had to learn. He had to learn this. Look what it says in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It says, Jesus asked God to to save him from death. He prayed with loud cries and tears. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was an embodied spirit being like you and I. Was Jesus willing to die? And the answer is, was Jesus somewhat resistant to die at the same time? And the answer is, he was, because he was a spirit being in a mortal body. Did Jesus' mortality, was he looking forward to being beaten? No! See, that's why we can understand Jesus didn't push down his bodily. You know what he did with it? When he was within the last week of his life and he didn't want to die, you know what he did with it? Get this. He expressed it to God. He didn't try to cover it up. Holy smokes, I'm the son of God. I got to die in two days. I better get this under control. I mean, holy smokes, how am I going to go to the cross if I don't want to die? We laugh. We laugh. How many things do you try to control? 
How many thoughts and feelings do you try to push down and hide? Or how many? Some of us don't push our thoughts and feelings down inside. Some of us, what do we do? There you go. It's his fault. Of course, uh, bitter if you had to live with him. I didn't just look at that. <laughs> Some of us, we don't, we don't push it down. We push it out on others. We exert influence down. We exert influence out. You know what God wants us to do? Not exert. Express. Tell me. Speak freely to me. Come into the throne of God. And in order to help you do that, I have put my son in a body so that you can meet somebody there who sympathizes with you. Look at him. He understands. So with Jesus, you can learn to enter the the throne of God. This is what Jesus... Jesus was in touch with both divine desires and human desires. That's why he says in Matthew 26, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, Jesus didn't want to die, but he did want to die. Did he? And he didn't suppress either part of himself. He expressed both of them. That's a really good thing to do, by the way. We don't have the luxury of wanting one thing. We want this thing and that thing. We're like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Which way should we go? This way looks good. But what we tend to do is when we feel both afraid and unafraid, we tend to try to push one, right? Push one down. I can't feel this way. And you know what God says? Don't push anything around. Come here. Shh. Talk to me. Talk to me. Why would I do that? Because I want you to enter my rest. You know what it's like when you have a nightmare? Bad dream. And for some, it might be a time you just, I remember when I was little, I told you, I, I had this weird dream. There was, there was a suit of clothes hanging on my door, and it was my dad's suit. And so I had this kind of a cross between a dream and a nightmare and a vision, something like that. Anyways, this suit of clothes turned into this really scary thing with spikes sticking out of its eyes. The only thing I can remember, they weren't thumbtacks either. They weren't thumbtacks. They <laughs> And, and so I don't know how I did it, but I, I got around because this monster <laughs> was on the back of the door and the door was closed. And so I summoned all my courage and I just opened it and I just flew into my parents' bedroom and I just dove. And you know what I did? No, I, I actually didn't do that. You know what I did? I got myself under control. That's what I really did. I, I got myself under control before I... No, of course I didn't. Of course I did. You know what I did? I was petrified. And I dove in, and what did I do? I just huddled there. You know what I did? I entered their rest. I entered their rest. They didn't have a bad dream. And pretty soon, lying there between them, I was able to fall asleep. God wants us to enter his rest. He says, come here. Come here. What he says. Um, He had to learn here, and there's something significant here, 
Um, it says that Jesus offered prayers, and the word for offered is exactly the same word that described the priests offering animal sacrifices. And you say, so what, Mike? You know what's interesting? What has replaced animal sacrifices? We don't offer them to God anymore, right? Do you know what we offer in, in, in the place of animal sacrifices? Prayers, thoughts and feelings. We express ourselves to him. And God, it says God loved the smell. It, it was devotion to him. When we offer up real prayers to God, not fake ones, God, I'm a set. I don't like what's happening. I'm frightened. And sometimes when we cry, Jesus did with loud cries and tears. And it wasn't just, you know, just, you know, <laughs> quick, you get the tear out of my eye, you know, because God can't see me crying. Again, some of us cry, some of us don't. I'm not saying cry. All I'm saying is Jesus was divine and human, and he cried when he talked to God. Hmm. And when he did that, you know what the Father said? That is worship to me. When you come to me, and are honest with me. God doesn't want you fawning in his presence. You know, wants openness and honesty. He's your father. That's why he dispatches his son to meet you at the door of the throne of grace. Um, how did Jesus develop this capacity? It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. You know what the word obedience here means? It's from two words, under and listen. Jesus had to learn to under-listen. So he was in places where there was all kinds of noise. And what he had to do, he had to learn to tune in the Father's voice. And he learned to do that in the midst of difficulty. If you're looking to tune God's voice in, you're going to have to tune in something gentle, because that's what he's expressing to you. If you run into someone, I want you to listen to me, who is suggesting that God looks at you and looks at the world and is outraged and vindictive. If it's a radio, turn it off. It's not him. We're going to be exposed to things like that. That's not what this text indicates. Um, It says, being made perfect, he became a high priest. Perfect is equipped. The equipment that Jesus needs to be our high priest, and we're done, is sympathy. Sympathy is not just, ah, isn't that nice? Isn't it nice that Jesus sympathizes with us? Why don't you listen to me? Jesus' sympathy is not nice. It's necessary. He wants you to come to the throne of grace and speak freely with him. That's what he wants to teach us. It's really hard. We're going to talk about this in a seminar. We've done 
entering God's rest seminars. We're going to do one more this year. We'll probably repeat this in a couple years, but not for a couple years. We'll, we'll cycle in different kinds of seminars. So if you want to, we're going to do it in two weeks. There's no charge. We just want you to, we want you to sign up so we make sure there's enough material. But if you're going to enter God's rest, and we'll continue to talk about this as a theme, but at the seminar, we'll just kind of be, that's what the morning will be about. Um, if you're going to enter God's rest, sympathy is not nice. It's necessary. God wants you to express your distress to him. He commands us to enter his presence with confidence. And just so you know, that is the direction that he, that's what he wants of us. How many of us are absolutely confident entering God's presence? And we can do it however angry we are. Come on, get your hands up. Come on. You know what? None of us are. Tell you what though, can we go in that, can we go in that direction together? Can we encourage one another and learn from one another how to approach the throne of grace with confidence to speak freely? Because that is what he's asking of us. That's what he wants of us. Come on up. Let's sing in a closing song. Encouragement, hang if you can. Let's let's sit down and have some food. Oh. Um, and let me pray for to close the service and pray for the meal so the food won't be cursed. <laughs> you know how much God hates it when you don't pray before that meal. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. That's right. Let me pray for it. God, thanks for your. Um, Thanks for your understanding. You do want us to enter the throne of grace and speak freely. It's not nice. It's, it's really what you want from us. It's, you receive it as worship. It's hard to learn, God. We, we develop images of you that make us less than comfortable. But we see Jesus and we know that he sympathizes because you tell us he did. He, in fact, you sent him not just to function as a grown-up, but you sent him into a womb so that whatever age we are, we can understand that Jesus knows what it's like to be that age. He knows what it's like to be a kid. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He can sympathize with that. He sympathizes with being an adult because we need to know that he sympathizes because you want us to enter the throne of grace and it's hard to be a kid and it's hard to be an adolescent. It's hard to be an adult and Jesus understands that and he would accompany you, accompany us into your presence. Help us to learn about that. It's not going to be quick, but help us to learn a little bit more, becoming a little bit more confident, a little bit freer. And so, yeah, with that, I pray that the time that we get now to eat, and um, thanks for the preparation, and I pray that it would be, uh, we'd get to know one another as we, as we feed. In Jesus' name, amen.